book of the Bible, Genesis, in the third chapter. I'll start at verse 8 and read through the end. Hear God's word, Genesis 3, starting at 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll make your pains in childbirth very severe. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove them out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we are doing a series for Advent. And yes, Andrew, I'm going to stand up here because I warned you I'd move. Um, and in Advent this year, we're going to talk about God showing up, and we're going to go through passages in the Bible. Um, I'm going to do three in the Old Testament. Brady's going to do one in the New Testament where we see God show up, and we're going to explore what that looks like um, because it's an important part of what it means to understand God in relationship with us. So I'm starting in Genesis 3. Normally, we call this story the fall. That's the heading in the NIV that I just read. Um, and I want to take you into this story and kind of look at it in, in a bit of a different light, not getting rid of anything we've learned before, but adding to our understanding of what's all there. So it's Advent. The theme is when God shows up, and today we're looking at when God shows up in our panic. And 
probably most of you. Um, so, by the way, the reason I skipped the first seven verses of Genesis 3 is because we're not talking about temptation. That's a different sermon. It might actually happen in the new year. Um, we're looking at, starting at verse 8, at what does it feel like to get caught after we've been tempted and fallen? All right? And I'm guessing most of us here have been caught doing something wrong somewhere along the way, right? It's that feeling, if you're old enough and you drive, and you drive faster than you're supposed to, of driving along, knowing you're going too fast, and suddenly seeing one of those cars that have the lights on top of it, and think, oh no, right? So think about what happens there, right? Your heart starts to race, and your mind starts to race, and you're coming up with reasons why you're supposed to be allowed to speed because you have, what, special privileges or something like that, right? And so that's the sort of feeling that we're thinking about, right? Um, one of the images that comes to my mind in, in terms of, of that feeling of panic is being sent to the principal's office. Not that I ever was, of course, right? But when you're going into the principal's office, you usually know why you're going in there. There's going to be a conversation going on there that, you know, might not end up that well for you personally as you go in there. That's the feeling we're dealing with. I'm guessing that I don't need to walk you through a whole lot of detail there because most of us have done things wrong and most of us have been caught, right? And if you haven't been caught, by the way, this is just an aside, confess it ahead of time. That's actually a better way to deal with it, but that's not today's message. That's just a good idea. Okay, so the first thing that usually happens when we get caught after that feeling of panic is we play the shame and blame game, right? The shame and blame game. It's... God says to Adam, and he, where, where are you? And, they, and Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Right? I felt vulnerable and exposed, so I hid myself. Psychology calls this the fight or flight response. The flight response is, okay, wait a minute, God's bigger than me. He knows what I did. I'm hiding. Right? That's running away. Um, little kids sometimes hide under the table because they think you can't see them there or under their bed and all, or run to their room. That idea is us going... Yeah, I don't like this feeling. It's uncomfortable. I want to get away from it, right? And so probably the first thing we just need to own is that all of us have very naturally that um, response to being in any kind of trouble or danger, and doing something wrong does put you in danger, and so you, you hide. And then we start playing the shame game or the blame game. Here it's Adam saying, it's the woman you put here with me. That was a really brilliant one, by the way. I'm always a little disturbed that Genesis 3 teaches us how to make excuses, right? It never actually gives us what should they have done. That would have been a much more helpful lesson, right? What should they have said? They should have said, God, I did it. I'm sorry, right? I confess, and maybe they could have wrapped things up a little quicker in a little faster fashion, right? But it does show us what we normally do, which is, God, you gave me her, and she made me do this. So I'm twice removed from this. You and the woman have a problem, and I, of course, am innocent, right? And you hear how dumb that sounds, right? It sounds dumb when you say it, too. I just want to point that out to you, right? We say things like that all the time. There's always a really good reason why I should be allowed to do the things that I want to do, but that other person, that other person who does wrong, whoa, no, no, they're, they're horrible, Right? And that's kind of the dynamic we get into. And that, um, I want to talk just a little more about the shame piece of this, because um, we're going to move into how God shows up. And what I want you to pay attention to on all, 
eight points. There's eight more points of this sermon. Just warming up. Um, on all eight points, take, pay attention to when does God shame Adam and Eve? The answer is he doesn't. When does God give them the impression that they suck? He doesn't. And I point that out because I think sometimes our method of dealing with people doing things wrong is shaming them, right? We get a little uneasy about what's going wrong around us and we want to control it and manage it and so we make it seem like the person is completely rotten and nothing else will ever work well for them. But let's take a look right now at how God shows up. So the first thing God does is he shows up in person and um, if you listen to Bema, this is like three sessions in and when they talk about this, they, they help you re-understand this story. And there's a whole bunch of pieces of this story, which if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this story many times because it's very foundational to how we understand um, life in this world. But there's stuff in here that doesn't normally happen. For example, serpents talking, right? And if you grew up in the church, well, the serpent talks because it's Genesis 3, and I've learned that since a little child, so I never bothered to wonder, what's going on there? Right? And I asked, I can't remember where I was, but recently I had a conversation with some people around since the curse is going to happen also to the serpent, does that mean all snakes are cursed? And is that why I'm afraid of them? And the answer is that no. Notice the word is serpent here, right? It's the serpent who does this. And the serpent is a representative of embodied evil, Satan or the devil, right? It's not all snakes, right? This isn't an embodied snake. This is a story that's helping us understand how this dynamic between God and evil and temptation and all that stuff takes place and then how God shows up. And there's this line. God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, what does that look like in your mind when you see God walking in the garden in the cool of the day? Right? I'm assuming you're seeing some embodied person. And why did God need to walk in the cool of the day? He's God. You don't think he could handle the heat of the day? Right? It's just a very personal image of exactly how we would want to walk. I don't know about you, but if it's the middle of a hot, sunny day and you don't have hair, right, you might not have a hat, you're not walking out in the sun. You're waiting until the evening or the morning when it's nice and cool and you're going to walk in the shade and you're going to enjoy that moment. That's what God's doing. He's just going for a stroll in his creation and he's going to have a chat with Adam and Eve and he says, wait a minute, where are they? Right? God shows up in this very, this image is so intentional. It's a very personal showing up of God in the cool of the day. And the second way that God shows up is that he's seeking us out, right? So when, when somebody does something really rotten and you're not the one blowing up at them because it's not personal to you, how many of us, our response is, I'm going to try not to be in that conversation. I'm going to walk over here and stay out of that because it's uncomfortable, right? So notice what God does. God's wanting to walk with them and he finds out that they're not there, and his response is, where are you? God comes and finds us, right? God doesn't go, huh, horrible people, right? Because think, think of what they did, right? You've got all of Algonquin Park full of trees, and God says, that one there in the middle, don't eat of it, and they ate it. Our response, I think, Okay, I'll just do me. My response would have been, come on, 
How horrible are you that you couldn't just leave one tree alone? And God's perfect. And he didn't do these kinds of things. But his response is, where are you? I'm going to come in person, and I'm going to seek you out. I'm going to have a conversation with you. Then God is curious. I'm curious. Yep. He says, who told you that you were naked? How did you learn this? And have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And again, you get to put the tone in there. I'm choosing the tone of curiosity. Right? I think sometimes this has been taught that God is coming in with fire and daggers, but the rest of the story doesn't actually bear that out. Right? God could have just wiped the whole thing out. That was an option. He goes, who told you this? Have you eaten from the tree? Did, what happened here? And what, really what he's doing here is what we call restorative practices. Right? We practice that in this church. If something goes wrong, we bring people together and we make a point of not raising our voices, not getting in a, into a big emotional um, experience, but first going, what happened? And how did you see this? And how did that take place? Right? So God asks, what is this you have done? And once he figures out what they have done, he says, now, because you've done this, there are consequences, right? This isn't, this isn't God's entering in and saying, hey, there's no guilt here. This is just a free ride. This is God going, let's be real about what actually happened. Let's do justice here, right? But let's first find out actually what happened. I see God walking in in a uh, controlled manner, if you will, and having this conversation with Adam and Eve. And this, God shows up full of grace and truth. Now, this is a huge verse. This is Genesis 3.15. This is a huge verse in the understanding of the Bible, but it's also horribly unclear if you grew up in 2000s in uh, North America, right? Because this isn't isn't our language. So let me explain it to you, um, even if you've had it explained before. So I will put enmity, so there'll be strife, there'll be friction, there'll be tension, God says, between you, the serpent, you, Satan, right, and, between, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And this is the important part, but also the confusing part. He will crush your head. Who's he in this, right? I remember growing up and having this read to me and being told, yeah, this is very important for understanding, you know, Jesus and so on. I'm going, really? Who's he? How's this fit? Because it's the woman. No, okay, wait. So he here is the offspring of the woman. This is the amazing thing about the Bible. It manages in chapter 3 to start talking about Jesus already, right? And it's a bit subtle. That's why I'm taking some time to explain it to you. But as the story plays out, you go, yeah, that's exactly who this was. This is that Jesus is going to crush the serpent's head, all right? And at the same time, you, the serpent, will strike his heel. So it goes like this. There's a snake there, a serpent, right? And I'm playing the part of Jesus with my heel and the serpent's there. He's biting my heel, which is going to make me say, ow, right? But as I put my heel down, he's crushed and game over, right? So that's the image. God, in the person of Jesus, is going to stand on the head of Satan and wipe him out. That's the promise here, right? And of course, we call this the curse. The curse. Yet, what I want to point to you is there's definitely cursed stuff in here. There's definitely stuff that went wrong because of what Adam and Eve did. But every step along the way is God going, yeah, there are consequences, but here's the hope. Yeah, there's consequences, but here's the hope. Yeah, there's consequences, but here's the hope. And so as we interact with each other, as we do restorative stuff, as we do that as followers of Jesus, 
anytime there's consequences, please make sure you're also giving that sign and trust and vision of hope, okay? A little later, we're gonna do communion, and this is the communion teaching for today, right? That what happens on the cross, right, is it looks like Satan's gonna get Jesus. He got him on the cross. He's biting his heel, if you will. It looks like he's doing a whole lot more than that. It looks like he's taking his life. He's crucifying him, but in the end, as we know, with the resurrection of Jesus on Easter, the head, the power of Satan is destroyed, and Jesus wins. It looks like a loss because getting bitten by a snake could be fatal, right? But in the end, it becomes a victory. That's what we receive from God, full of grace and truth. And then punished with a promise. So what I'm doing here is I'm, I'm cherry-picking from, um, from the passage, and I need to be upfront about that because when you're doing that, that usually gets you in trouble. All right, so I'm just being upfront that I'm just taking verse, words from right in the middle of the verse because we hear, right, the curse of you're going to um, have great pain and suffering in childbirth. But what was the deal if Adam and Eve ate from the tree in the center of the garden? You'll surely die. What is the idea of childbirth? It's life and future and hope, right? And the curse for Adam was, you're going to sweat like buckets and it's going to be a real pain to produce food. But you will eat food all the days of your life is right in the middle of that. So yes, there's a curse. Yes, there are consequences. But again, right in the middle of those consequences is God saying, you are going to have children. You are going to live. You are going to have hope. And I will be with you all the way through this. Yes, these consequences are going to be there, but make no mistake, there will be life, there will be food, and there will be hope. And in case that wasn't enough, he gives them clothing improvements. So you remember what they did. They took fig leaves, try this sometime, take some leaves, sew them together, and make clothing for yourself. And you'll be hoping for God to come along and go, how about we put some real clothes on you? We make them out of skins. We make them out of, right, um, animal skins. He gives them coats. So again, God makes the first sacrifice, if you will, because I take it that the animal skins from which he made these clothes required a sacrifice of an animal, right? And again, he's giving that hint of that whole system he's going to put in place where animals die on our behalf and give us what we need to, to move forward, Right? And in doing so, God again is showing, yes, there are consequences. There is a loss of life here, right? But the loss of life is going to allow you to keep living, and it's going to give you that sense of hope. And then number eight, you remember I said there's eight, right? So this is the last one. And this is the cutoff from compounding. So we know again that, if you know the story, that at the end, God says, wait, they can't eat now also from the tree of life, so he kicks them out of the garden, and he puts a, a cherubim, an angel there with a big sword, making sure they can never come back into the garden, all right? And you think, yeah, that's horrible. They got kicked out of their home. But this is actually, again, an act of grace. Because once you're in the fallen state, if you eat of the tree of life now, you're eternalizing that state, right? You're making it permanent. And so God says, we, we can't let them do that. We've got to kick them out so that they, they can't make this broken situation a permanent one. We need to, again, leave room for hope, 
right? Yes, there's consequences. Yes, they got to get kicked out. Yes, they're going to struggle for food. Yes, they'll be struggling in relationships, and there'll be struggles in childbirth and all those kinds of things, but there's this gift and anticipation of hope. We don't want people to live forever in the mess. We want them to have the knowledge and the anticipation, the advent feeling of hope for something better. This must look really funny online that all I do is step up and step down. I don't know why I'm doing that, but you're welcome for the little dance move there. So, let me summarize it for you. We, in Advent, anticipate Jesus showing up among us, just like God did walking in the garden in Genesis 3, full of grace and truth. That's actually what it says in John chapter 1, right? Jesus came full of grace and truth. He asks restorative questions, right? Jesus was always walking up to people. Do you want to get well, right? Do you have faith? Do you believe? These kinds of things. And he clothes us in righteousness. Never mind just animal skins. Just, never mind just clothes. Jesus clothes us in righteousness. All the dressing talk, by the way, all the clothing talk in the New Testament is always about your spiritual clothing, right? Never about what you actually wear. And he does all this by being God and being with us. So we live in anticipation that in spite of the fact that temptation still happens in our lives and we still fall for it and we still eat from the one thing we're not supposed to eat from, we still do all that messy stuff that makes us guilty, but God doesn't say, and then now I'm going to shame you and leave you there. He says, no, I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you hope. There's going to be consequences. There has to be justice. There has to be truth. We all want there to be truth and justice in this world because otherwise people can just do whatever they want. There has to be truth and justice, but it's going to come through hope and redemption and love in Jesus Christ. And that's why God came as Jesus right into our neighborhood and into our lives. And he reached out and he touched people and he invited them in and he welcomed them and he said, come, follow me, follow me. He walked with us in the cool of the day in the garden because that's the kind of God we serve when it comes to us in love and serves us with hope. Let us pray. Jesus Thank you. Thank you that you took your Father's lead and came into this world, that you walked among us, that you were full of grace and truth, that you entered our lives and that you continue to enter our lives, that you say, where are you? And when you find us, you ask us restorative questions where you're curious about what we've done wrong, but you meet us there with hope, with clothing, with peace, with words that tell us we will live in you. And so we pray. Come now this day, Lord Jesus, and fill us with yourself. Fill us with the bread and the cup. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with truth. And all this we pray in your holy name. Amen.